This podcast is brought to you by PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is committed to keeping you ever current on the dynamic trends shaping the legal world. Learn more at pli.edu slash ftpod. Welcome to Fast Tracked, Emergent Issues in the Legal Profession, brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute. I'm your host, Jen Leonard, founder of Creative Lawyers. Buckle up as we hit the gas and explore the most dynamic trends shaping the legal world, from generative AI to DE&I and everything in between. I hope you'll join us as we explore the future of law today. On today's episode, we hear from Heather Nevitt, Editor-in-Chief of Corporate Counsel, ALM, and Patrick Fuller, Chief Strategist for ALM, about the state of the corporate legal services industry. I hope you enjoy this insightful discussion. Today, I am thrilled to introduce our audience to two of my favorite experts in legal to talk about the changing landscape in the corporate legal environment, and particularly the relationship between corporate in-house counsel and their outside law firms. And who better to lead us in this conversation than two of the most knowledgeable people that I know, Heather Nevitt, who is Editor-in-Chief of Corporate Coverage, Corporate Counsel, and Global Leaders in Law for ALM. And Heather is joined by Patrick Fuller, who is Chief Strategist for ALM. Welcome to the podcast, Patrick and Heather. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having us, Jen. Yeah, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Absolutely. So there is so much to dig into. The last few years have been chaotic, to say the least. And we could pick any big topic to sink our teeth into and discuss how this is impacting the corporate legal services market. We can think of things like hybrid work that emerged post-COVID that we're still trying to navigate, a really rapidly changing regulatory environment, the changing conversation around ESG and DE&I initiatives, how we're developing and retaining and growing our in-house talent, and also generative AI, which of course has dominated the landscape over the last 15 months or so. So recognizing that we probably won't have time in this podcast conversation to cover everything, I'm curious from both of you, as you've been following this marketplace for so long, which one or two topics do you think will have the most lasting impact on the market for legal services in the corporate realm? And Heather, I'm going to start with you. Sure. Yeah, just by you asking that question shows everything that's on corporate plates, right? I mean, in-house just have so much to navigate through and they're really trying to get their hands around all of it. But if I had to pick one of those, I would have to pick AI. The regulatory enforcement um, environment is certainly a huge focus right now for so many industries. And it has the possibility to shift with administrations though. But however, there was a recent survey, I think it came out from Goldman Sachs that estimated that Gen AI would automate 44% of legal tasks in the U.S. And I think that is an alarming statistic and one that makes legal very nervous, but I don't necessarily think that it's a negative number. I, I think it's more of a transformative type of scenario. In fact, this is a very selfish plug for us, but Legal Week New York is next week. And Patrick and I present the state of the industry. And if you can imagine, it is going to be very 
focused around AI and the opportunities and risks, of course, because our audience is lawyers, right? So, but we're just in this infant stage of what AI means for the legal industry. And because it's evolving so quickly, and it's a relatively unknown space for a lot of legal departments, I can't emphasize that enough. They really do need help with understanding and executing AI for efficiency reasons and also that risk element. There's a learning curve there for sure for those folks. So I'll just stop there and say that AI probably will have the most significant impact going forward in the long term. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Heather. And Patrick, would you agree? Oh, it's hard not to, right? Yeah. I mean, I think AI for a myriad of reasons, you know, a lot of which, you know, Heather mentioned, I think a couple of things and Heather kind of got added towards the end there a little bit too. I think it's going to create significant more work and it's going to increase the amount of volume you know, a lot of us have spent the last six months to a year playing around with variations of, you know, ChatGPT and OpenAI. And, you know, it's interesting if you are to get into something and say, you know, generate an image in the style of X or generate a document in, you know, the style of Y. I had it one night, you know, write a song in the style of a very specific band. You know, one of the things that you start thinking about is the large language learning models that it's utilizing protected intellectual property to do so. And so there is a fine line, you know, between what can be used for training and what can be used for monetization. So I think we're going to have a little bit of the blur- blurring of that line between what is actually monetizable versus what is actually set up for training. So I do think it's going to create demand, which I think will impact, you know, the market obviously. So I do think that we're going to see, you know, more growth in terms of AI-related legal work that's going to happen. At the same time, and you know, again, we're going to talk more about this, you know, throughout this discussion and in other venues as well, too. But AI is also going to bring the two things that have eluded legal for the last 200 years, right? Which is speed and scale. And it's going to impact not only legal departments and their ability to, I think, benefit from scale as firms develop solutions or outside providers, third-party providers, develop solutions that are one-to-many the way that we've been doing it for years in the software industry, where it reduces the amount of work that is going into, you know, is being sent to outside firms. So I do think it has the potential to mitigate a little bit of the spend issues that Heather talks about this quite a bit. And I do think it also is going to enable organizations to make decisions faster, which we'll also talk about as well, too. But I mean, we're going to get into the computational component of it and the data that that you can bring in. So the decision support services, I think, are going to be really strong. Firms are going to have to be very careful in terms of the the attorney-client relationship and how they use ChatGPT because of what is then the inputs that are used for the training module and the learning module of it, right? So unless you're utilizing the way I understand it, unless you're utilizing the enterprise API, you are at risk of exposing confidential and privileged information into the learning environment for GPT. And so I do think that's another issue that we're going to have to deal with. Yeah, which is an additional sort of hurdle to figuring out how to best integrate generative AI on the firm side. And there's so much complexity that goes into this. And I want to come back to the in-house counsel side because I would agree with both of you that I think Gen AI is this transformational force that will really change the way that legal services are delivered, are desired, are consumed. 
And so we could think about all of the substantive legal issues that generative AI will create. And I agree with both of you. I think that in the long term, there will be more work for lawyers to do. And my hope is that the work will be even more interesting and complex and that this will create efficiencies that al- allow lawyers to actually deploy their brain power to tackling those issues. But if you're sitting in the general counsel's seat today, the last year, you've sort of seen law firms publicly announce their own in-house generative AI capabilities, a lot of press releases about using Gen AI. You're is sitting in the corporate counsel's office. You're trying to guide the C-suite on what it means for the broader enterprise. You're trying to think about what it means for how your lawyers practice and how to upskill your lawyers and the proliferation of legal issues that are coming down the pike really rapidly. So how do you even start to get your arms around what an organized roadmap for guiding a legal department might look like? What are your very first steps if you can even take a breath and try to sort out all the complexity here? And Heather, I'm going to start with you. If you were a GC at a major corporation, and especially a corporation that is really interested in leveraging the power of generative AI, where would you get started? Well, I think first you have to take a step back and you have to get into the mind of the GC, you know, and the most important thing for a GC to be successful is that you're bringing and really able to show measurable value to your organization. It's the number one thing every GC tells me is that's their biggest challenge. That's their biggest focus. If you understand that first as an outside provider, that's where you need to start. And bringing the value to the company can be really challenging because you're trying to balance constantly growing, moving, changing demands and risk, right? But you have to be seen as that business strategist. You have to be with someone who works alongside the business, moving it forward. And yes, you know, you have to keep them out of trouble. That's paramount and mitigate those risks. And you have to understand the risk appetite of your company. You know, I would say a perfect example of those differences is tech companies are going to have a much larger risk appetite, right? Than say like the airline industry. So you have to understand the business, integrate yourself in the business and not look like you're an impediment to growth or being thought of as a place where ideas go to die, right? Because the last thing you want to be seen is a cost center. And when companies look at the bottom line, you want the legal team to rise to that level of being a value generator and be able to provide those measurable KPIs to the C-suite and the board. So once you understand that as an outside provider, then you need to understand what you can take off their plates to be able for them to succeed in that role, right? So that's where AI can also come into play. It can help bring the more efficiencies into the department. I think the two biggest cost centers, and Patrick, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the two biggest cost centers for legal departments are contract and litigation work. So those type of things, if AI or outside counsel can help, you know, relieve those pressures, then they can, then it enables them to be that strategic business partner and bring that value that the organization's really going to want from them. Fantastic. And I I have a follow-up question. I want to see if Patrick has anything he wants to add before I ask. No. I'm curious, Heather, because what I'm hearing from law firm partners is, you know, you have this sort of interesting dynamic where you've got legal on both sides in the client's office and in the outside counsel's office. Everybody is trying to get their arms around the complexity happening within their own organization. And at the same time, everybody has to sort of be co-designing what the future looks like so that the firms can do exactly what you're talking about, make sure that they're bringing value add to their in-house counsel or to their client, forgive me. 
as we're all moving along this path. So as you talk to general counsel in your work, do you get the sense that they would like to be hearing from their outside counsel right now about generative AI? Do they want outreach from their law firm partners? My sense is that law firm partners feel a little bit insecure because maybe for the first time ever, they are as novice to this as everybody else is. I fear for them that they might freeze in the face of that fear rather than engaging in a conversation about co-design that is necessarily a little bit messy because of the nature of what we're dealing with. What would your recommendation be? Well, I think it starts with a real conversation. I think there's a lot of opportunities missed where outside counsel just don't reach out to their client and ask, what do you need? What do you need help with? What are you struggling with? What are your challenges? I think with outside counsel, their initial knee-jerk response is, there's a matter I need to work up. What am I going to do? What am I going to solve for this client and start billing? And I think the opportunity that is really such a large one is to pick up the phone or schedule a meeting and say, what are your problems? What are you struggling with right now? What can I help you with? You know, and a lot of that can be tied to the issues around the billable hour, right? I mean, you know, that isn't something that a lot of law firms can bill for. And so they may push that off their plate. But I think that is going to be a differentiator for your outside partners if they really do understand your challenges. And a lot of times they don't know what general counsel are dealing with. They they just think it's matter specific and it's not. And so that would be my advice. Yeah, I would agree. And I think it's part of this fundamental shift to the structure of the legal services market where, you know, traditionally it has been more of an over the wall type arrangement where, you know, a question comes from your client and you work up the question internally or you perform the task needed internally and deliver it. And it feels like this moment where even though we've been talking about this for a long time, it's really true that there needs to be more of an active and ongoing conversation. And Patrick, I'm curious from you, as Heather mentioned, a lot of this work is developmental on the client relationship side. A lot of it will not be billable or drive revenue in the short term, which strikes me as another challenge of the legal services market in corporate, that we have to take a midterm and long-term view to some of the investments that we're making now Would you agree with that? And what do you think the next few years look like in terms of revenue growth for firms around client development and what they should be thinking about in terms of their strategy in having conversations and how it impacts revenue? Look, I I think it's a good question. And I think, you know, Heather's already made some outstanding points in terms of the challenges that firms are going to have to overcome in terms of serving their clients and positioning themselves to serve their clients. A couple of things to that. One, we've seen throughout you know the last 20 years, especially, how it took a while for something like LPOs and contract lawyers and some of these you know alternative or non-traditional service providers to really gain a foothold, even with corporate legal departments. You know, we talk about it often. You know, we all work in a profession that is largely based on precedent, right? So, you know, it's we deal a lot with show me what everybody else has done and the fact that it works. And so that always slows down the progressive growth because there's very few firms that are in a race for first. Most of them are in a race for second or third in that respect. And so the byproduct of that is you're not getting a lot of innovation, you know, coming into the legal department. 
The other thing is something that we talk about a lot in behavioral economics. It's a concept known as loss aversion. And, you know, loss aversion is essentially where the pain from a loss far outweighs, you know, the pleasure derived from any win. And I think when you start talking about something that is unproven in the eyes of a lot of the lawyers and delivering services via, you know, generative AI or a form of automation that they're not comfortable with, the risk that they have in terms of, is this going to cost me a client? Is this something that if it doesn't deliver the way that we think it is, because I can control the rest of the process. I've done this for 30 years. I know what I'm doing. I can deliver this service. If I put it in the hands of something else and it costs me my client, I'm not prepared for that to go down this road. So I think you're going to see a lot of cautious optimism. You're going to see a lot of pragmatism. I think the other part of it too is aligning the internal law firm structure with the expectations of the buy side. And again, it's something about quite a bit. You need three things to sort of come together, right? You need to have your fee arrangements to align with the technology that you are utilizing. So if you're utilizing a lot of automation and a lot of technology that is facilitating, especially for certain practice areas that have defined rules bases that are facilitating a lot of efficiency, you need to align the fee arrangement. But in order for those two things to work, you also have to align the drivers and the compensation structure for the lawyers, right? Because none of us went to college to get smarter, as we all know. So we have to make sure that we are aligning those three things together. And then that's just on the provider side. Then from the with the law department, you have to make sure that it's aligning to what they're trying to accomplish. And that's what Heather is really, you know, so good at, at stating and articulating is the fact that what the legal departments are often trying to accomplish is something completely different from what the law firms are willing to provide. And that's been the challenge that we've run into for a while. And so I think as law firms look at what the next five to 10 years is going to be, it's going to have to be, I think, tempered expectations. I think you're going to have to be able to push the envelope on growth. I think you're going to have to push the envelope on development, but you also have to remember that and manage the expectations internally with your firm that it is not going to be an immediate ROI, that this is the long term and we're playing the long game because change in this profession is really slow. But when it happens, and we've seen this before, and Jen, you and I have talked about this before, when it does happen, there is rapid evolution that comes from it. And that's sort of the area that we're going to be. So it's going to be a lot of invest, invest, develop, grow, test, repeat. All of a sudden, the buy side sort of takes a hold of it. And then the changes are going to come fast and furious. And I think where law firms need to be is they need to prepare themselves now to be at a point that when the market does switch in that respect, that they're able, they're positioned and they've developed their business and positioned their business in a way that they can capitalize on it. Because if they have to play catch up at that point, they're in a world of hurt. You have to be proactive in that space. You can't be reactive. Just like in-house counsel can't be reactive for their own client, their own business. They have to be you know, horizon scanners and see what's on, you know, what's happening down the pike. The law firms need to be right there with them as a partner and not trying to catch up. 100%, Patrick. And I'm nodding in violent agreement with both of you because it all sounds like the right approach. And yet I wrote down tempered expectations. It seems to me like that is one of the most difficult things to execute successfully as a law firm chair or managing partner. And there's so much in this conversation, loss aversion and fear. I think one of the biggest fears that is justifiable for leadership of a firm is retention of your top 
partners, right? And this sort of frothy lateral market where people are moving around all the time. And now you have this new force where you're coming to your lawyers and you're saying, we need you to manage your expectations for revenue over the short term, because this is a long-term playbook that we're executing. How on earth do you manage that leadership feat in a business structure that really doesn't support that message? And I don't have a a good answer to that. I don't know if either of you do. It might just be a question without a a neat answer. Well, I think one of the challenges that is unique to legal, and maybe it hits into a couple of other verticals too, is the governance model of which, you know, these billion-dollar organizations are run. It's, you know, we have term limits on leadership. We have executive committees that rotate in off years. When you get into the corporate structure, yes, you're going to have, especially publicly traded companies, you're going to have a board of directors, but you're going to have a C-suite that's going to be largely constant. For the most part, if they're doing their job, are going to be able to execute the strategy, you know, lay out the vision and execute the strategy and have the time to be able to do that. The challenge that is, you know, sort of baked into legal is the fact that depending on when you're doing this and how your bylaws are structured inside your firm, you may be at a point right now where you're laying out strategy and the managing partner may only have you know, one year left on, you know, the second three-year term, and then they're capped out at another three-year term after this. You've got four years to sort of make this happen. And then you've got to ensure that your succession plan that's in place and who you've been grooming is set to continue the strategy and the path that's been, you know, pushed forward. I think, so there's a level of complexity that gets brought into this that is, I think, a bit more unique to legal than it is in other industries. That being said, you know, we're still at a point with legal where we have largely avoided all of Porter's five forces, right? And so, you know, for those not familiar, Michael Porter, professor at Harvard, wrote a book in 1979 called Competitive Strategy, in which he laid out there was five market forces that largely affected the strategic decisions of companies. And everything sort of emanated around an industry rivalry, which we've always had in legal. And if you think about it like a compass with a north and a south and an east and a west, on the horizontal axis, you had the bargaining power of buyers and the bargaining power of suppliers. We've dealt with that throughout every step of the way in legal, right? We've had periods where it's been, you know, really buy, you know, buyer controlled. We've had areas where it's been a seller's market. And then vertically, you know, one of the things you look at is the threat of new entrants. We've had that forever. We've had spinoffs, we've had mergers, we've had new companies that came out. But what legal really has not yet dealt with until recently, and it's really, I think, in the infancy stage in the last, say, decade to 15 years, is the threat of substitute products and services, which is really the the threat of becoming obsolete. And I think that's at the heart of everything that we're talking about right now is this fear of we are now facing a level of disruption and that we haven't faced before. And, And the challenge is this, is that we can't go out and be chicken little and say, oh, the sky is falling and all this is going to happen immediately because the reality of it is it's not. It's going gonna, it's gonna to happen slowly and it's going to happen over a you know five to 10 year period. But there is going to be change. There are going to be substitute, the threat of substitute products, substitute service providers. But the one thing that we've seen is that the industries that have been able to embrace that have grown from it. The ones that have fought it have ended up and the companies within those have ended up kind of going away. And so I think it's we are at an inflection point for lawyers at this point in law firms. 
Yeah. And to add to that, you're exactly right, Patrick. I mean, and you have to kind of think how you're providing that service, even as a traditional law firm or maybe another service provider. But, you know, I had a GC recently told me that the big pressure with AI is going to be about lawyers divorcing their value from the written work product that they're producing. And I thought that was really interesting because as a lawyer, I will tell you that a lot of people feel that's where they're valued. That's why you get those 40-page memos in-house counsel get those in their inbox because you know lawyers love to speak, they love to write, and they love to see their work product you know, and the written word, right? So we saw how important that that really is when we saw ChatGPT try to write a pleading. It didn't go so well. For those that didn't see it, you know, it contained fake sites, fake case law, ChatGPT hallucinated all over the place. So there may be some argument against that thought around replacing the written work product, at least right now as we stand. We know that things are changing so quickly and it's just adapting. But I think it really needs to be thought of as maybe not doing away with the written word, but thinking in a more strategic way on how to help your client. That is an easy shift to do. We need to make sure that outside partners are thinking strategically in how to help the client not only solve legal problems, but help the business grow and function in a new environment. And is, if you can put that advice, your legal advice through that, that business lens and understand that that's what they have to provide to their board, the more you're going to get repeat business and maintain that long-term relationship. Yeah, you just Absolutely. nailed it. Sorry, yeah. yeah, you just nailed it completely. And you know, the chat GPT example, I think, is really prescient. You know, we survived and we overcame the I'm not a cat issue <laughs> on the Zoom call, right? Where the guy couldn't figure yeah, out how to turn Texas, off the filter. that was Texas, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. well, <laughs> you, you know, I mean, I was going to leave that part of it out and everything. Heather's home state. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I have lived here for a while. <laughs> but because it was humorous, right? We could laugh about it. We've all experienced that before. But this goes back to the loss aversion component that I was talking about, right? And the fact that the chat GPT scenario is what you don't want to give somebody that's going to anchor to something that went wrong once, right? Because now this is proof that this is not going to work and we're not going to change. And by the way, I've got $2.7 million that I made last year that tells you and tells me that what I've been doing for the last 20 years is working just fine, right? So it's this combination of all these things coming together along with the fact that, you know what, we're paid really well, right? And so there's a comfort level that exists right now that is not necessarily pushing me into that level of discomfort necessary to facilitate change. And I think that's going to be a struggle is situations like the chat GPT and also the fact that we're really not experiencing the pain that we need to experience in order to facilitate change. I will always express deep gratitude to the Zoom cat because it was one of the few moments during the pandemic where I laughed so hard that I cried and then cried tears of sadness for the legal profession that we can't get our arms around emerging technology. And I agree with everything both of you are saying, and this has become unexpectedly academic, I suppose, but Patrick, building on your Porter's Five Forces reference, I think a lot about Clayton Christensen's work on innovation and the innovator's dilemma, right? And, and his thesis was that people who are dominant or firms and companies that are dominant in a given industry, new technology emerges, they continue to make the right choices 
for their firms and companies based on what has always historically helped them succeed and the roadmap that's been successful for them. And to your earlier point about aligning fee arrangements with the value add that Heather so perfectly captured that outside counsel are looking for, law firms themselves internally are structured and designed to support a model that's been historically successful. And that will continue in the next few years. And at the same time, you will have new organizations coming to the fore that are structured differently to leverage generative AI and to think more deeply about what Heather's talking about, which is why are we being compensated to provide services to these legal departments and structure their organizations accordingly. And that will be interesting to see how the law firms emerge on the other side of that sort of parallel advancement in those different marketplaces. But it leads me to another question, which is the added complexity that the rise of legal operations as a profession has created in the corporate buy market for legal services. And Heather, I'm curious from you whether you think law firms continue to grapple with this, some successfully, some less successfully. We see all sorts of movement, I suspect, and mergers happening as they try to figure this out. How does the corporate counsel's focus on legal ops combined with emerging entrance into the market impact the corporate legal spend? Do we see law firms being the winners here or do we see new entrants or existing alternative legal service providers winning out? Yeah, I mean, legal ops is having a revival of sorts, I would say, because of AI. You know, if you ask in-house counsel right now, if they could add one support member to their team. And I will just kind of touch on, you know, when how law firms are trying to structure their organizations and keeping talent retention, I will say talent retention really isn't such a significant issue right now for in-house counsel. It was about a year ago, but right now they're just more looking at restructuring their legal department and who to bring in with more specific expertise, I think is kind of how they're looking at things because they've gone through some rifts and have been talking about that at our conferences a little bit more definitely than a year ago. But if you ask them if they wanted to add someone to their team, if they had a wish list, it would definitely be a legal ops professional. And that's just helping with all those things that I mentioned before, trying to, you know, get efficiency around con- you know, contract management and litigations, you know, spend. And Gen AI has the ability to possibly do that and, you know, reshape their approach to all those things. And the reason that is just so critical, it just goes back to this underlying theme, I'll keep repeating, but the reason that is so critical is they have to be able to free up their time to have a more consultive role within the organization. You know, rather than spending their time on contracts, they can't do all of these things. They can't keep adding things to their responsibility and not taking away others. So, you know, if legal ops can help with analyzing contracts or, you know, do those more mundane routine tasks, then they can become that better strategic advisor and enhance their business. So I think that shift of the landscape will encourage CLOs to move, you know, beyond kind of mere management of incoming work and start developing their strategic plans for the organization. I'll just add one more thing. I think they're they're also facing increased pressure to provide a data-backed view of their performance and business impact. So data, again, is just so critical. And I don't know that they've, they really understand how to do that effectively. So that's where legal ops can also come in and help them 
show their value in measurable data to the business. Add Patrick? Yeah, I mean, and it's me following Heather sometimes is sort of like Millie Vanilli following <laughs> Bruce Springsteen. It's um, not true. At actually, all. <laughs> actually, sorry with Bruce. It's Taylor Swift. How about that? Um, <laughs> That's not what I was saying. Not at all for Patrick. <laughs> was it your choice of uh, artist you mentioned? No. Uh, you know, I'm still stuck in the '80s. I mean, you've worked with me for seven years. You know how stuck um, in the '80s I am. We're the same age, Patrick. So we come. We're cut from the same cloth. It's all good. <laughs> Yeah, I, but I think one of the challenges in Jen and your question, I think it your question sort of articulates one of the challenges that we're still trying to determine, right? Which is what is a win for these different organizations? Because what's a win for ALSPs, given sort of the low bar where that's at, is going to be significantly different than what is a win for a law firm, which is going to be significantly different than what's a win for a legal department, right? So I think the interesting thing about this is the different players in this scenario all have different ideas of what actually is going to be a win. I am really bullish on legal ops. I am really bullish on legal ops because I see legal ops in legal departments where I saw marketing and business development 20 years ago in law firms. The one area where I think it is, and Heather hit on it, I think really well, and I think it's, I'm going to expand on it a little bit. You know, Heather talked about the ability to go talk to the, you know, freeing up time for the lawyers to go talk to the business a little bit more. And she's talked about that. You know, we've worked together, like I said, for seven years, and she has not, you know, strayed from that point during that time, which proves how difficult it actually is for that to happen, right? We're still talking about it. So I think when you start bringing legal ops people in, you start not only taking some of that administrative stuff off of your plate, and it would be interesting, by the way, as a quick aside, to measure productivity in a legal department versus in a law firm, right? So if, you know, in every eight-hour day, the way we measure productivity in a law firm is what of those eight hours are spent on net billable, client billable time. When it should be 75 to 80% somewhere in that ballpark, you know, if not higher, maybe a little bit lower, depending on the firm size for lawyers in large law. It'd be really interesting to, to do that same study in legal departments and see where that number is in terms of actual matter work, right? Because I think to the point that Heather's raised and c- continues to raise, there's so much administrative work and so much quote unquote non billable work that happens at the law department level that bringing in not only ops, but bringing in the analysts and the business professionals to be able to take some of that off the plate is going to be vital. It's going to enable them to be more proactive and engage more with the business leaders inside their own company. And that I think is going to go a long way to helping address the other question that Heather raised earlier or the other point that Heather raised earlier around sort of the cost center component of it. Because as we talk about all this stuff with AI, we talk about, you know, all the development and innovation that translates into locking down a lot of intellectual property, right? And making sure that the patents that we're putting together are airtight because we know upon history, right, that we are going to have a significant uptick in those types of issues. So, you know, I think getting to that point where we can free up the lawyers in the legal departments to be able to have more substantive conversations in, you know, interconnect or interface or, you know, whatever it might be, engage with the business side a little bit more 
is going to be better. By the way, it also enables the law firm business professionals. They should be having more conversations with the law department legal professionals as well. It shouldn't be the billing clerks talking to the paralegals or talking to procurement. It should be significantly more substantive. And I think this is where it gets into a really, we could get into a really fascinating discussion around what collaboration actually should look like and what it will look like moving forward, how we go to market, how law firms go to business, go to market and conduct their business and how legal departments conduct their business and interact with their own clients, which are is the business is going to change as collaboration and collaboration software becomes more more common. And it's going to change, I think, fundamentally the impact that ops and business professionals have in the legal departments. Yeah. And I'll just add on that collaboration topic. If So there's like three things if you go out to GCs that they really want. You know, they want, of course, predictability and they don't want to be caught off guard and they want clear communication on what is happening with their matter. But they also mention horizon scanning and collaboration. And the collaboration element is not just working collaboratively with the firm, they mean the firm working collaboratively with outside vendors. Like if there's a, if they need to use a tech company or if they need to use, you know, an ALSP, something to work together to solve the problem that the GC or the company is facing. And I don't think that is something that law firms, especially in the US are so competitive um, I don't think they think of that necessarily as an option is to partner with other law firms, other ALSPs, maybe competitors to really provide that deep level service that the client needs. So that's a that's also possibly a missed opportunity. I know there are firms that do do that, but it's not as common as you see it maybe in the UK. We see it a little bit more. You know, a couple of years ago, Heather and I were working on a project internally, and obviously we're not going to get into details, but we were working on this project. And one of the things that we found ourselves talking about was exactly what Heather just talked about, which was the collaboration between outside firms. Right as I was leaving one of my former jobs, former careers, working with legal departments, especially, you know, around the data and the analytics, one of the things that we started to measure in terms of end of matter reviews popping up more and more was how our outside counsel coordinated with co-counsel and how did they interact and coordinate with opposing counsel as well too. There were, we're starting to get more and more questions around collaboration and that is going to get, I think it's going to continue to get measured. And Heather raised that point. I mean, what Heather's what, three years ago, I think when we were working on that four years ago when we were working on that and that I think is only going to become a data point. It's going to become a bigger data point that's going to be utilized in terms of evaluating lawyers, their performance, the law firm's performance, the client team's performance, because now we have something else measure sort of our service provider as an extension of our organization, as an extension of our brand. And how well are these two groups working together? Can we solve this problem over here by by pairing up these lawyers or this law firm and this group over here? Because we know they're going to work well together. We They've demonstrated it before. They have really good reviews from all of our internal stakeholders, how they collaborate with other groups. This is something that we can actually build and go to market with, whereas before it was just really siloed in terms of how we looked at everything. So I do think that collaboration piece, you're going to increasingly see more and more measurement being done at the legal department level on that in terms of the evaluation of outside counsel providers or outside providers, plural. Which is super interesting, right? Because 
as we're thinking about the next three to five years and the earlier point about fear on the firm side, that the idea of moving to a more collaborative (laughs) with other service providers seems to be something that will be even more uncomfortable in an environment where people are afraid that the landscape is changing so quickly. And I wanted to touch back to something you're both talking about. And I keep thinking about, again, to the point of structure. And Patrick, I think you made the point of realigning conversations and which roles in your organization are talking to which other roles. I make the same point about law schools and law firms is that when law firms want new skills, they tend to go to the career services offices of law schools who are helpful, but they are not the designers of curricula. And so, you know, going to the tenured faculty and saying, this is what is actually happening on the ground. And these are the classes that we need integrated is a stronger move than talking to people in the organization that don't have the power to make that change. So I think there's so many different places in the entire landscape where everything needs to be realigned after we get through this messiness of (laughs) what does a win look like for everybody and how do we move forward together? And I wanted to sort of build on this conversation and talk about talent retention and professional development and teaching and learning. I feel like I get excited as somebody who likes to learn things. I feel like there's never been a moment like now where we all get the chance to learn as quickly as possible about something that never existed before. But as you mentioned, Heather, historically, the legal department is viewed as a cost center. And the data point that the broader corporation looks at is the budget for the legal department and whether it's growing or staying the same or shrinking. So it seems to me like this is a moment where the legal department really needs to invest resources in talent development so that it can do all the things that we're talking about. What do the conversations look like now between the CLO or the general counsel and the company about making those investments so that they can generate real value. Yeah, that's a hard one. And I think that's where the data component comes into place. If they can really show kind of X on the back end that this will lead to those results, I think that benefits them, right? A lot of times they don't really know how to explain it or show it in a way the business understands. And that's, again, going to the whole discussion around understanding the language of the business critical for in-house. You know, we don't learn that in law school and you can't sound like a lawyer when you're going into these meetings and having these discussions with the internal stakeholders. You need to talk in the language that they appreciate, value, and understand. And it's a, and I think, you know, that's why a lot of, not to plug our own things again, but I think that's why a lot of in-house counsel come to our conferences to, to kind of learn that. Our global leaders in law membership really focus on business acumen because it's a missing factor in a lot of really good lawyering. So it's, you know, the being a good lawyer has kind of become table stakes in a legal department. So yeah, I think to answer your question, I mean, I think that is critical I'll also add, as far as the talent goes, the biggest issue I'm hearing with talent from legal departments is really managing a multi-generational workforce. It's something that comes up almost in every conversation. It'll just flow into that as challenges when I go around the room and say, what are your biggest challenges? Along with regulatory and data privacy and all the expected answers, the managing a multi-generational workforce is right there at the top. Because I think it's like the first time in history we've had more than four generations in the workplace at one time, and they all work, right? Learn differently. They work differently. They have different expectations of growth, different expectations of compensation. They learn in different ways. So I will just say that, you know, adding the RT, the return to office 
component into there as well has really exacerbated that that management challenge and that talent challenge. I don't know, Patrick, if you're seeing that in law firms as well, but I definitely am seeing that in-house departments. Well, I mean, yes. And for so many reasons. I mean, first and foremost, let's go, we could talk about historically, you know, as we've done a lot already in this episode, how law firms make their money and it's correlated directly to the number of producers, right? So it's one of the few professions where if we want to increase our revenue, it's not through scale, it's through adding more producers, right? So the talent component of this becomes vital. And the reality of it is roughly on average, you know, just in the MLA 200, about 7% of all partners change firms every year, you know? And so what's happening is that the replacement costs are always going to be more, typically going to be more than the incumbent cost and the retention cost. So now the cost for talent is going up. The margin for error for a lot of firms, especially those that are outside of the MLA 50, MLA 75, is shrinking more and more, right? They don't have that margin for error anymore. Yet here's the thing, and we just released a study on this, and, and Heather's going to talk about this at the State of the Industry too, but we just released a study that we did with Marcy Schunk on this. And law firms on average are spending less than 1% of gross revenues on professional development and investing in education. Now, we have CLE, but CLE is designed to keep you up to speed as a lawyer. And the point that Heather is making and continues to make around speaking like a business and understanding, you know, sort of that element of it, we haven't invested heavily in, right? And Jen, you're living proof of the fact that we haven't invested historically in technology and technology growth and the things that you were doing when you were at Penn and others, you know, Dan Lin has done and Cat Moon has done and how they've sort of embraced the fact that we need to start thinking about this and learning differently because there's new skills. I think that there are a couple of challenges that are we're going to continue to face. One is firms have got to do a better job of educating, and I think legal departments do too, but there's a time component to that, right? So one of the reasons that the bulk of money that is spent on you know professional development inside law firms is going to associates is because you know they're trying to get them young while they have more time. They're also, especially first and second year associates, right? There's increasingly you know, more and more outside counsel guidelines that says, we're not going to allow you to bill time for this. So we're going to take that period to invest in, in growth. So I think that there's some issues that we're going to have to work around there. Speaking purely selfishly, I can tell you, and I think I've told both of you this individually, I, you know, I feel now like I am the best version of myself from a learning perspective. I feel like I am learning now at a level that I've never learned at before, in part because I've got 25 years of mistakes behind me that I've been able to learn from as well, too. But it's also the exposure because we've all put ourselves into a position now at a certain level where you're getting exposed to things that you wouldn't get exposed to when you were younger and coming up into the ranks. So you have that combination of experience and exposure that is opening a world of learning opportunities for you. And I think a lot of us now, and I have this conversation a lot with people a lot of us feel that we're at that point right now where we're not even at the apex yet, but we're still kind of getting to that point of our ability to learn and the things that we are learning. And I think it is for firms, I think they need to continue investing in that type of growth beyond the legal growth. I think they they have to take a page out of what some of the Silicon Valley companies have done, invest in the success of their people. And part of that, by the way, is going to go to reduce the turnover because I am convinced, and I can be completely wrong, but we've done studies with Marcy Schunk. I've done 
studies with Tracy Lalonde, who does a great job with employee engagement, is the more that we can engage and we can engage in a way that doesn't allow us to be undersold, right? Basically, what we're talking about here is creating invisible switching costs. That's really what we want to do is create invisible or intangible switching costs that enable us, that are going to protect us against being undersold, right? Because at some point, if somebody comes to you and says, you know what, we're going to give you Deshaun Watson money guaranteed, you know, we're going to give you, you know, this massive contract or this massive agreement that you can look at it and go, yeah, there's no way I can walk away from this. We're going to take that part of it out of the equation. But for everything else, and we're talking about 15% more, 10, you know, 20% more at a certain level, it's additive, right? It's not game changing anymore. And so one of the things that firms are going to have to do is look at this and say, okay, what can we do to mitigate the risk because of the rest of the disruption to the firm? How can we invest in our people, invest in their success to mitigate the risk of them leaving? Because it also then impacts the client experience. And it's easier, I think, for firms to tackle that than corporate legal departments because of the time value, right? Corporate legal departments, and Heather has talked about this a lot, they are slammed. They are so busy right now, even though the corporate setting should be able to give way to more learning opportunity and more continuing education opportunity. Right now, they're so lean that they don't have time to do the things and invest in those types of opportunities that they should be investing in from a leadership training perspective, from a technology training perspective, an education perspective. They just don't have the time. Law firms do to some degree. They should be taking advantage of it and investing more in their people. And now not a lot of firms are doing it consistently. I will say traditionally the law firm culture is not set up in a way that helps, you know, teach their people outside of what they need to get done and make money for. It, it's just a different type of cultural experience. I think corporations are set up a little bit better to help their people succeed and grow their their ability. But like you said, they're treading water every day, just trying to get things done with the do more with the same. I won't say less, but I'll say do mm-hmm. more with the same type of resources that in-house co- in legal departments have. But I think it comes down to a lot of it is just the culture. And it's a really hard thing to change the law firm culture. And specifically, I think corporations have are trying to do that better. But law firms seem to still be stuck in how they've always done things. And I mean, if you've ever been an associate at a law firm, you know exactly what that means. It's not, you're not going in for the experience in the early stages of your career as a baby lawyer to get what you just said, Patrick, to get all of that, (laughs) you know, additional leadership training and support. There's still a eat what you kill type of culture that remains in a lot of law firms. Not all, of course, but a lot of them. Now, you've both highlighted so many of the challenges of the multi-generational workplace, which is just another layer of complexity in the face of all these other things that we're trying to get our arms around. And the structural challenges of a partnership, again, this marketplace where people move around, you know, for the higher PPEP at a law firm down the street, and to Patrick's original statement of tempering expectations and going to that partnership and saying, we're going to take this of resources in the year ahead and invested in a scaffolded learning experience for our junior associates while you're getting pushback from your revenue generating clients that they're not paying for those associates anymore. It's just, it feels sometimes insurmountable as a challenge, the way that the organizations are structured. 
So I'm going to set that to the side because I have empathy now for everybody leading these organizations, even though I'm not one because I'm feeling stressed (laughs) about trying to tackle all these topics. But one of the reasons that I love talking with both of you is you have such deep knowledge and expertise of the market, obviously, and you write so eloquently and helpfully to everybody, but you're also really focused on data. And so to wrap up our conversation, I would love to hear from each of you the single data point right now that is most interesting to you and what story it's telling us about what's happening in the landscape right now. And maybe I'll start with Patrick and give Heather the final word for our conversation. You're assuming that the data point's going to allow time for Heather to... Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is definitely Patrick's like everything. So he'll have... <laughs> I, I know. I should have known better. As soon as it came out of my mouth, I do. No. no, it's good. No, no. I think what's really fascinating to me, and then one data point that I always look at, and it's something that, that ha- again, this all the stuff that we're talking about, Heather and I talk about offline all the time. And for me, it's really, it's profit, right? Because what it comes down to everywhere is dollars in the door. You know, it it doesn't matter what you bill if you're only collecting, you know, 70% of it or 60% of it, it's dollars in the door. And that point then too, it's, you know, is that growth keeping up with inflation? You know, one of the things that we did a study on was, you know, went back and looked at, you know, the last 10 years, and you mentioned, Jen, earlier, some of the AMLA metrics. I went back and I looked at the AMLA metrics over 10 years and adjusted them for inflation to the last, you know, fiscal year of that study. And shockingly, firms outside of the AMLA 100 were either flat or declining in terms of, you know, the key metrics when you actually adjusted them for inflation. And a lot of that was around profit. Everything that we're talking about right here is predicated upon profit, right? Any of the change that we're talking about is predicated upon profit because it's the engine that drives growth. And, you know, you can't, it's hard to spend your way to profit. I have tried doing that on Amazon, like at 11 o'clock at night and just spending (laughs) my way to profit. Turns out it doesn't work and it makes your wife angry. (laughs) But conversely, right, we cannot cut ourselves. And we've seen this with law firms, right? And we've seen this with other organizations. Oh, we're going to cut all of our expenses. Well, you can't cut your way to growth either, right? So there is that fine line that you have to walk. And profit becomes that area where you have to measure it and manage it in a way that is going to allow you to not only remain competitive, but also invest in the future and invest in growth. And that, you know, and again, that's separate from what Jen you were talking about before. You mentioned, you know, going down the road for Pete, you know, for a higher profits per equity partner. We put out that metric. I will be the first to tell you I'm not a huge fan of that metric, just simply because well, we can tweak our leverage model a little bit. We can show a bigger number. What we really want to look at is profit per employee or profit per lawyer, because that's going to tell us a more accurate story. Are we growing that? And are we growing that in a way? That is keeping pace or exceeding inflationary growth because everything that we've talked about today, all the technology we've talked about, all of the changes that we're talking about, it is upping the cost right now for firms in terms of how they deliver services, right? So that cost to deliver services today is far greater than it was 10 years ago. As the talent costs go up and because we are still largely based on the individual producer, as we've talked about, that cost to deliver services is going to continue to increase. So I look at profit. I look at dollars in the door. I look at how that is keeping pace with inflationary growth, because without that, we're not investing in any of the other areas that we need to invest in for growth. And that, you know, I mean, I think that's what it comes down to for me. Heather? 
I could just hear the excitement in your voice, Patrick, talking about this. <laughs> this is just your happy place. I don't have too much to add because, you know, it's all very true. I will just say from the in-house perspective, you know, there's just, this is a drumbeat they always get, but there's just such increased pressure on them to provide, you know, really good data around how they are, you know, bringing that value, but also like their impact to the business. If there are budget cuts and that department is looked at as a cost center, you know, the quintessential department of no, they're going to be the first to just get the ax and they'll just hire outside counsel to do the work. So whatever data can be there to show that legal is really growing the business, driving organizational efficiency, you know, maybe it's enterprise-wide technology solutions or whatever it is to show that they have their tentacles across all the business all the business, you know, leads, they, they should, I mean, they're the perfect like hub, right? They should have their tentacles across every single different business, business need and understand those business initiatives. So if they can show that, if they can be the person that, or the department that the business comes to, to help with solutions, to drive business, to get things going, then they're going to have that data to show that they really bring value and grow the business. Man, I could talk to you guys for hours. I love geeking out on all of this and I learn so much every time I talk with you. And I want to thank you for spending your very precious time sharing your expertise with our audience. I know on the firm side and on the corporate counsel side, everybody is eager to think about how to best approach the next few years ahead of us, which I think are really exciting and also really challenging. So thank you both for your time. No, thank you. I mean, this is the furthest thing from work that we're going to do today. I promise you. Thank you for joining us on Fast Track. I hope you enjoyed this fascinating conversation as much as I did. Visit pli.edu for more insights, education, and resources for navigating this dynamic landscape. And until next time, stay curious and stay adaptable as we work together to chart a course into an exciting future.